How are we all doing? Good? What? What'd you say? Bibles. Anyone need a Bible just before I jump in? Anyone needs a Bible? Just wave at Alan and he'll pass one out to you. Am I very loud? Yeah. Oh, Jason says I'm always very loud. That's not very nice, Jason. Very cheeky. Very rude of you to say that. Um, <clears throat> just before we jump in. Oh, here, why don't, why don't, while we're doing the offering, why don't you stand up? Give yourselves a wee shake, will you? Because those announcements were very long, JC. <laughs> just giving them a bit of stick, sorry. If you're new, this is totally normal. We really love each other. It's just banter, all right? But why don't you stand up and give yourselves a wee shake? Lots of people not standing. Can you please stand up and give yourself a wee shake or a wee stretch? Thank you. Thank you. You really don't want me to get into cross mummy mode. Honestly, trust you. Sit down again now. Yeah, thanks very much. <clears throat> yeah, the problem with that is that when you get up, then you all start chatting again. What is it? See? My goodness. Okay, I love that we love each other. I love that we love to talk. I am probably one of the worst for chatting away. Okay, can I tell you something uh, fun? Okay, I got to go and see my favorite band last night, you too. Andy and Claire were there too, weren't you? Unreal, unreal. I'm not gonna start talking about it because I will be here for 15 minutes telling you every single moment. But if you follow me on Instagram, I've already bored you to death with my Instagram stories because I must have had 10 up last night. It was absolutely, absolutely amazing. There were moments of pure joy. There were moments of the Holy Spirit. I'm not joking, it was just absolutely incredible. So I'm kind of buzzing this morning, so just apologize for that in advance in case it kind of spills into my talk that I'm still buzzing, but it was brilliant. So as Jason said, we are in um, probably in the middle, halfway through a series on prayer um, called Teach Us to Pray. And basically, I think that there's the simplest way of saying what VCD is about, and Jason's already said it this morning, is that we want to follow Jesus and we want to organize our, our lives around three things, three goals. We want to become like we want to be with Jesus. We want to learn how to do that. Because in this, in this current world that we live in, it is something we have to learn, isn't it? To be with Jesus isn't just something that automatically comes naturally to us in this day and age, I don't think. Maybe it's never um, came easily, but I certainly find for myself, it's not something that comes easy to, to, to want to, to have the desire to, and actually to spend time being with Jesus. So we want to learn how to do that. We want to become like him. The thing is that when you spend time with Jesus, you fall more in love with who he is, and you just want to be like him. You just you find out more about his character, more about his heart, more about the depth of who he is as a person, more of who he is, who, who God is, and you're just like, I want to be like that. And in that place, then we become more like him. And then we want to do the things that Jesus did. Because one of the great things is, as we read the Gospels, is that we're invited into this invitation to not just to be with Jesus, become like him, but we get invited in to do the things that he did. So to do that, to kind of do those three things and to progress in that journey with Jesus, we need to orientate our life around some spiritual practices. And this is why we're talking about prayer. 
We used to talk about a lot, and, and I have before talked about the spiritual practices, but maybe used the word discipline. Who likes that word? Anyone? Good. I don't like it. I'm just looking around in case there's somebody really super disciplined, people who absolutely love that word. But I think of discipline. Number one, I think of exercise. Oh, sorry, Alan. I just can't cope with that whole thing. And dance. We now have two fitness people in our church. It's really bad every time I see the two of you. It's not you, Jason. No, definitely not you. I'm like, I kind of rush. I can't rush past Alan anymore because he works with us. But I'm like, oh, please. Oh, you can tell that I haven't exercised this week. That's how I feel every time I see them. It's like they have this inbuilt kind of sense now of when people haven't exercised. Maybe you don't, but that's how I feel. <clears throat> um, where was I? I've totally done it, Jason, there and got totally... Disciplines, yeah, disciplines. But I love this word practice because actually it is a practice. And a practice means it's something that, that, that is good for us, something that we need to do, but it's also something that we need to practice. It's something that we need to practice. It's something that we need intentionally to do in our lives, and then it becomes a joy. Luke 11 is going to be one of my main texts today, and I'm going to be skipping through quite a lot of scripture but I will give you time to look it up. If you have your Bibles with you, brilliant. If you don't, there's a couple more here. Use your phones, tablets, whatever, but it'd be great if you could follow along with me. We're going to jump in. First of all, we're going to read Luke 11, 1 to 4, but we will cover the whole 1 to 13 a wee bit later. Are we there? Somebody wave at me when we're there. A few of us. General consensus? Okay. Luke 11, verses 1 to 4. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day your daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Lord, teach us to pray. And this is the goal of this series. You know, sometimes I think that it's, it's prayer, kind of the whole conversation around prayer is the how do we pray? We ask that, don't we? Like, God, how do we pray? And the disciples are saying that here, like, teach us to pray. How do we pray? But there's another question is the why, would, why do we pray? Why do we need to pray? And then there's the how. So it's the why, the what, and the how. How do, we, how do we go about this, Jesus? How do we actually make this work? And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's more the, the how do we pray because I get so distracted. Any of the rest of you get distracted? I get so easily distracted. I sit down to pray. And I'm in the, I'm a, I have a favorite chair, and I'm sitting looking out my favorite chair, and I'm looking at my wonderful new office shed. It's so kindly been built for me, and I'm sitting looking at that going, oh, that's really lovely. And then I start, my mind starts wandering off, and then I'm looking at the trees. And one minute I'm looking at the trees, and I'm in awe of Jesus and creation. And then the next thing I'm thinking about the washing in the utility room. Anybody else find that? I'm just so easily distracted. And sometimes we don't know what we should pray, do we? Is it okay to pray for a new car? I think it is. You know, and we think, well, I mean, should I be praying just for like, people I know? Should I be praying for, is it okay to be selfish in my prayers, Jesus? And sometimes we get so, so caught up in the what we should pray for that we almost get paralyzed and we don't pray for anything. 
kind of just give up and go, okay, I don't really know what it is that I'm supposed to be praying for. Maybe I should only pray for holy things. Anyone else fall into that category? Maybe I should only be coming to God with really holy things. But here's, and then Jesus says, Jesus says this, the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Which leads to a really obvious question then, well, God, then why do I need to pray? If you already know what I'm going to ask you, why do I need to come and pray in the first place? But I think that if we only see prayer as a, as a transactional thing between us and God, then we really miss the whole point. We miss the whole point. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. For us to understand the invitation of prayer that the Father invites us into, then we have to go right back to the very, very beginning. Right back to how God created us. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. God's original intent for us was that we would rule. See this in these verses? Rule, verse 26. That we may rule over the fish of the sea. That we may rule, that we may be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That we would be rulers with him. That's who he created us to be. God's original intent was for free, intelligent, creative human beings to collaborate with him and run in the world. That's who he created us to be. Now, whenever people, whenever, um, people in the Near Eastern world read these verses, they would have grasped what this idea of image of God was. Now, for us, it's a wee bit more difficult. We, we kind of have to wrestle with that a wee bit. What does it mean to be made in the image of God and all that? But if you were reading these scriptures, if you were hearing these scriptures, which you would have in those days rather than read them, when you would have heard the, this Genesis read to you, when, you've, when you would have learned that as a young um, Jewish person, you would have instantly known what it meant. It meant that you were made in the image of the king. Because the only person, actually, did you were made in the image of God meant that the only person alive that was actually told and said that they were made in the image of God was Pharaoh or the kings that ruled. They were the only ones that were told that they were image bearers. So whenever they would have heard this way back in the Near Eastern times, when they would have read this, they would have went, wow, we're all made in the image of God. It's not just this hierarchy. It's not just the chosen one or two people, but actually we're all made as image bearers. We're all made to rule. That's what they would have read into this straight away when they saw this. We were created to rule over the earth under God's authority. 
under his authority. We're not equal, okay? I'm not saying this morning, don't panic about my theology this morning. I'm not for one moment saying that we are equal to God, but we are made in his image to rule and to reign under his authority over the whole world itself. We get to stand in the space between the creator and his creation. Not as an android or a puppet, but as a royal son and daughter, as a prince and a princess, to rule with the ruler of the universe over the world and to collaborate with God in writing human history. What an invitation. What a privilege. And what a responsibility. Genesis 2. Flip over to Genesis 2 for me. Lots of scriptures this morning. Um, This Bible is not playing bold with me. Anyway, sorry. I'm going to have to keep moving it around. I need a bigger table, I think. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. You're free. One of the first things God says is, you're free. You are free to choose. You can choose from the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, don't get too caught up in whether this is um, these ancient scriptures and this account in Genesis. Don't get too caught up in whether it's a myth or where it's actual history, okay? That's not the point. The point is, in this story, when we read about the account of Adam and Eve, what we see is they, humanity, people, us, them, they have a choice between choosing the king and his kingdom or rebellion against the king and his kingdom. And what does a human choose? Flip over to Genesis 3, 6 to 7. When the, woman's, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In a moment, they realized that their freedom that they thought that they were, the freedom that they had been given by God was stolen from them through rebellion. The second thing I want to say this morning is due to the freedom that God built into human nature, this world has gone horribly wrong. Isn't that true? How many times have you sat in your own lives or you have looked at bigger problems in the world and you just think to yourself, God, why did you give us choice? Why did you give us choice? This is like an age-old question that we have. But you see, God wanted us to be rulers, but he wanted us to be free. We're not as slaves. We're not puppets. We're not androids. He wanted us to be free. The root problem in the world is not access to free education or extreme poverty or social economic inequality. The root problem is that the human heart is bent out of shape in the wrong direction. The human heart is bent out of shape towards rebellion instead of obedience. 
to its king, to their king. Eden, Eden was all about freedom to choose, and that's the problem. But the rest of the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's solution to this very problem. Exodus 32. I'm not hearing many pages moving. Phones, is it? Mainly phones. We're very trendy church, aren't we? Very up to date. Exodus 32, 1 to 13. Wave at me when you have it, so I've got an idea. Great, okay, brilliant. <clears throat> when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, well, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Doesn't sound very Christian to me, indulging in revelry. Anyway, digress. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. I love that. The Lord says to Moses, go down because your people, so now Moses' people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are, are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. God and Moses get into this conversation. God says, "These your people, Moses. Your people, look what your people have done. And Moses comes back again. And I, I love the intimacy and the relationship in this. He says, he says, God, listen to me. Why should your burn, anger burn against your people? He reminds God who the people are. Now, this text has puzzled a lot of scholars. Um, and some people can't accept really what this text says is that Moses changed the mind of God. 
So a lot of people will do theological gymnastics to make it not say that. But actually, as we read it, he changes the mind of God. But I think what we are actually seeing here is God processing his emotions with a human partner. It's a conversation between God and his really close friend, Moses. They are, of course, not equal. God is God, and Moses is simply a man. However, in this account, I think we see this beautiful relationship between them, this intimate relationship where Moses is confident to appeal to God to change his mind. It is a beautiful invitation, a beautiful invitation into relationship with God that is mutual and more elastic and less rigid than maybe what we have grown up believing. The Euro people, Moses reminds God, you brought them out of slavery. Turn from your fierce anger. Turn around. This is contending prayer. This is Moses face to face with God. And it is incredibly personal. It is incredibly personal and it is incredibly frank and incredibly honest. See, Moses is so confident in his relationship with God. He, him and God, Moses and God have built up this intimate, close relationship. Do you remember we heard whenever Moses would come down the mountain, his face was so filled with the glory, he had got so close to God that the glory came off God and was on Moses. This is a close, intimate relationship. You see, there is a time to pray, your will be done, God. And there is a time to contend. And it's only in the context of deep relationship that I think that we know the difference. Ever been in a social situation where you've acted towards someone in an over-familiar way? Do you know what I mean? I do this. I feel like I do this all the time. It makes me feel so awkward. But I have this thing that if, if someone is in my life that I really love, like say one of my best friends, and they have another friend who I don't really know so well, but because I really love my friend and my friend really loves their friend, I kind of think we kind of love each other too. Anyone else there? The problem with this is that I have got myself into some really embarrassing situations where then I think I can say certain things or make a joke about something that actually I can't. And you do that, and then the person kind of looks at you as if say, I don't think you can say that to me. They don't actually say that, but that's the look they give you. Like you have, and you just know that you've overstepped the mark. And I hate that. I'm just like, oh my goodness, I want to go home now and just die. That's awful. You see, I think with our Father God, the deeper we go with him, the closer we get to him, the more intimate that we are with him, then we can contend. And I think that's why sometimes when we go to contend, that's why it feels a bit awkward is because we have not reached that level of deepness with him that we really feel like we know him. And he feels more like a friend of a friend rather than our close father. See, many times in scripture, we see this. We see that God's friends appear to change his mind. Abraham negotiated with God so that his cousin Lot would be rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. This intimate knowing, this relationship building prayer leads to contending. God moving prayers. See, we never seek to manipulate or coerce God in prayer. This is not what I'm saying. It's not that we coerce him. It's not that we manipulate him. 
This is all about relationship. We approach him as a loving father who responds to his children when they come to him. Prayer can move God's heart and it moves his hand. God knows when to say yes or no, but we have a role to play. We are invited to rule with God under his authority. Praying is talking to God about the outworkings of this rulership. He's asked us to rule the world. But how are we going to know what that looks like if we don't talk to him about it? If we don't ask him? If we don't actually work out what that looks like and what that means every day and in our every context? Number three, contend in prayer is relational collaboration where we join with God to usher in his kingdom. And contend in prayer, it is relational collaboration. It's us and God working together. That word collaboration, we are working with God to usher in his kingdom. We collaborate with God to rule as royal sons and daughters. I can't believe that God invites us into this, can you? For his own reasons, however, it has delighted God to do his work, at least in part, with us and through us. Blaise Pascal said, God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. That's so deep, I hardly know what that means. It's a wonderful thought. We are not merely passive set pieces in this prearranged cosmos drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, designing, and acting that the, as the world unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawn into communion with him and taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of the world. Wow. We pray your kingdom come. We pray that, don't we? Back to Luke 11. We pray it. Your kingdom come. His kingdom isn't all the way here yet. In heaven, God's will is done all the time. On earth, God's will is done some of the time, and there are all sorts of wills at play in the earth. We know that, don't we? But we pray, your kingdom come. That's the part we play. And Jesus' prayer makes a difference in the kingdom of God. When Jesus stepped up into his ministry, he taught that the kingdom of God was near, it was at hand, and it was coming. And then he demonstrated it. And how did he demonstrate that the kingdom of God was near, at hand, or coming? Shout out to me. How did he demonstrate the kingdom? Healed? Miracles? Anything else? Forgiveness? Casting out demons? Raising the dead? The poor heard the good news? However, I am convinced that the primary way that Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God was through prayer to the Father. Those things were the demonstration of the kingdom. But the primary way that the kingdom of God is ushered in through Jesus' ministry and continuing with us is through prayer. Prayer. You see, I think that sometimes it's actually easier to believe or in my head, I don't even know if I consciously believe this, but I think, I think that the kingdom is ushered in through hard work. 
I think that it's hard work that makes a difference. You know, preach better sermons, Michelle. Work better at your sermons. Work for justice. Make a difference where you live. Fight for social inequalities. Fight against those things. And all those are good. But actually, I think very few of us, and I confess myself included in that, really believe that primary, the primary way is through prayer. Maybe it's because we're frustrated. Because we know that working harder isn't working and isn't making a difference. But it's prayer. We usher in his kingdom first and foremost through prayer. Then we get to see it demonstrated. The dead raised. The sick healed. The poor hear the good news. Those that are bound to addiction set free. We are a frustrated angry, cynical generation, aren't we? Longing for a better world. I've had to stop following some people on Facebook and Instagram, I confess, because honestly, I just want to become one of those awful keyboard warriors and rant back. Do you ever get caught up in one of those rants? You're like, oh, I type it and then delete it. So I'm like, okay, I've typed it, but I have not actually posted it out to the whole world. But what if, what if we put our trust and hope in heaven? What if we put our trust and our hope in heaven, and those things that we see that are broken in our world, those things that we see that are not as they should be, those things that are completely so broken and bent out of place, what if we prayed about them? What if we came into this place of contending with God? What if we took up this place of rulership that God has actually put on us, that he's given to us, and what if we began to pray until we see things change? During the troubles, we prayed like this, out of desperation for peace to come, didn't we? We contended for peace. Any of you in this room that are older, well, younger ones, thank, and I mean this, it's all sincerity. Thank God you never had to live through what the rest of us lived through. But we contended for peace. And I really felt the Holy Spirit challenging me earlier this year. And he said to me, why have you stopped praying, Michelle? Like peace, we have. We have peace, yes. But we know that there are levels and depths of brokenness and trauma and hatred that lies just beneath the surface in our country. And I think it's time to contend again. It's time, church, to contend again. And, and this time it's for healing, for restoration and reconciliation that only God can bring. 20 years from the Good Friday Agreement, and we are still a divided country living with the aftermath of a bloody conflict. And I'm not meaning to get political this morning, but this is what the Father has put in my heart. I am not meaning to criticize our politicians. Many of them work so hard to try and make a difference. But it's time that we stop putting our trust in man and woman, and we put our trust fully on God. And we contend in prayer to see this wonderful country, this land of saints and scholars with the most amazing legacy of God moving in this place, north, south, east, and west. It's time that we contended again for the better days that are ahead of us. Only prayer, only prayer that contends, only prayer where you realize who you are and coming into this place, only that prayer will make a difference. Who's in? Karl Barth says this, to clasp the hands of prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Where 
Do you see disorder in this world? Pray about it. Luke 11. And I promise I'm coming into land. Or is that a Jason promise? Luke 11. Back to that text again. Verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Now this would be a big deal in this culture because the hospitality in this Near Eastern culture was huge. So if somebody came to your door, you were expected to give them a meal, okay? So this person's panicking. I have no food and my friend's arrived. And so he goes and he goes to his next door neighbor. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Jesus is saying here, if you can get the grumpy neighbor to answer your prayer because you annoy them enough and won't relent, how much more will a loving father answer you? Verse 9 to 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Three things I want us to remember and contend in prayer. Number one, ask. Number two, ask with shameless audacity. Persistent asking. And number three, ask endlessly. Don't stop asking with shameless audacity. The tense in this is keep asking, keep knocking. Don't stop, don't let up. Any Big Bang fans in the room? Right, so you'll all recognize this then. Penny, Penny, Penny. Okay, so all the rest of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. So there's, a, there's, a, there's this character in Big Bang, and he is relentless at rapping the door until Penny, one of his neighbors, opens constantly. I was going to show the video, but I couldn't get a short enough clip, or, to be honest, an appropriate enough one. That was another problem that I had. So anyway. But it's this relentlessness. We need to think Sheldon, right? It's this relentless knocking. Knocking. Father God. Father God. Still here, God. I'm still here. I'm going to keep asking, I'm going to keep asking. Luke 11, 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your sons ask for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus said, though you're evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your children. Mind you, I don't think any of our boys have ever asked me for an egg. Matthew often asks for fish, but that's usually because he wants to fish them rather than asking for them. But anyway, but you know, if your children come, he says, you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children. So how much more would our heavenly father, who is infinitely good, how much more would he give to us what we ask? Sometimes we don't ask 
Sometimes we don't ask. It makes me so sad sometimes, and I mean this genuinely and sincerely, when sometimes people are sick and I visit them or I'm talking to them and I'll say to them, have you prayed that God would heal you? And what surprises me is the amount of times that people say no. Now, there's many reasons for this. And sometimes it's because there's a fear of disappointment or unanswered prayer. And Jason's going to talk about that very emotive subject next week. But I think we have a greater problem in the Western church. And it's a bigger problem than unanswered prayer. And it's unasked prayer. It's unasked prayer. We live in a time of self-sufficiency. If I'm sick, I go to the doctor. That's if you can get an appointment. But that's a whole other story. Maybe in all seriousness, maybe that's something we should start praying for in our time. Where another surgery is about to close down. It's something that we need to contend with in prayer. If I need financial breakthrough in my life, I work harder or I borrow more. Whatever it is to work it out. We try and we fix and we problem solve all by ourselves. Because in our culture, that's what you do. You make it work. You fix your problems. But in God's kingdom, we ask first. We ask first. Remember, it's not unanswered prayers of the problem. It's unasked prayers. Sometimes we get tired and we give up, don't we? Sometimes we have prayed. Some of you, I know you have prayed for years, weeks, months, for God to move in a certain way or to, to change a certain situation. And there's all sorts of reasons. Sometimes God den- God's delays are not a denial. This morning, I want to encourage you, keep asking. Keep asking. Keep rapping that door like Sheldon. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Don't give up. Ask with audacity. This is my very last thing, and this is, this is where I've been wanting to go to all morning. Often in our desire to please God and come under his authority, which is all good, right? It is so good that we would desire to please God and come under his authority. But sometimes our first response is to pray, your will be done. I think it's so much better to end our prayers that way. And let me explain why. Remember Moses? He had this partnership, friendship with God in prayer. And we are invited into that same place father son daughter father relationship we come to him what's on our heart we come to the father we sit with him what's on our heart and we begin to talk to him about what we need we begin to talk to him about the things that we need to see changed that we long to see changed and in the conversation in the knowing of each other in the in the conversation back and forth the father begins to reveal to us his heart for the situation We continue to contend. We continue to pray. And do you know what ends up happening in this place, in that contending place? Our heart gets transformed to his heart. What's on his heart becomes what's on our heart. And then we pray, your will be done. But if we skip to the your will be done, we have missed so much of what the Father is inviting us into. And we come back the next day and we go all again. Father, the situation still hasn't changed. And, and all the time, we are growing closer to him. Who he is has been revealed to us. He begins to tell us, give us insights what to pray for. He begins to show us obstacles that need to be removed that we need to pray for. This is the mystery of prayer. 
Yes, the Father knows what we, we're going to pray before we pray it, but he invites us into this mystery of collaboration, of working together in prayer. I am so guilty of often ask, taking the easy route, the submissive route, what often looks like the spiritual route, and just saying, your will be done. Your will be done. But this week, as I've studied these passages, I am convinced that this invitation is so much more. So much more. Can you imagine the change in our lives, you and me, if we grasped this invitation into a place of deep intimacy with the Father? To have a relationship with him like Moses had, or even like Jesus had, but I'll be honest, I find it easier to ask for the Moses one because I just think Jesus is just like Jesus. So it's like, but we can ask for that too because we're co-heirs with them. But could you imagine, could you imagine that if our prayers grew from this place of intimacy with the Father, that our prayers that were, that were for ourselves and our families and our own circumstances, and then what if they, they extended out to being about our country and our nation? And what about it extended out again to be about matters that concern the whole of humanity and how the 7.5 billion of us are supposed to rule this planet that God has given us? I am fully convinced this morning that it's only in this place of contending prayer that we usher in his kingdom and that we can see real change in our world in our time. Would you stand with me? Yeah, Father, we wait on you. Hmm. Yeah. I've been reading that <clears throat> passage of God and Moses for years and years with a burning in my heart, longing for that place of intimacy with the Father. And honestly, this week, I feel like the Father gave me a way in through contending in prayer. And I would love to pray, first of all, this morning, I would love to pray for any of you that have that real burning desire to just be in that place with the Father, that real deep intimacy, that you are tired just coming to God with your lists and praying your will be done at the end, but you're longing for this deep friendship. If that's you, would you come forward this morning? Be brave, come out of your seats. You're longing for this place of deep intimacy with the Father. That changes not just your life, but actually has the potential to change the history of the world. Can I have some of the prayer team, please?
Yeah. Father God, I thank you. <clears throat> I thank you for each and every one of these people here. And why don't you put out your hands to receive from them? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, Father, you are 